Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Imagine you are a Roman legionary about to be ambushed in a gloomy forest. Imagine you are a senior general in a fascist state, weighing up whether to trust a slick politician. Imagine a democracy so built on corruption that the two parties agree on the results of elections before they are held. Imagine a podcast where all these stories are told in their depth. Well, the good news is you don't need to imagine. My name is Peter. And I'm Alex. And we're the hosts of History's Most, a podcast that deep dives into interesting, underreported, and controversial people, events, places, and topics in history, and apply superlatives to them. So if you want to know who history's most guilty man was, what history's most complicated war was, what history's most disastrous naval voyage was, or who history's most democratic fascist was, check out history's most for these fascinating stories, and of course many more. We also interview podcasters and experts on their specialisms, allowing them to bring their own most in history to the table. Our latest interview is with Robin himself about what makes Byzantium history's most underrated civilization. So that's history's most, the show that brings you the most interesting stories from history every fortnight. Available wherever you get your podcasts from. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 213, The People's Crusade. Today we resume our narrative as the Crusaders begin their epic journey to Jerusalem. Or given that this is the History of Byzantium, maybe I should say, today we resume our narrative as Alexius looks at the approaching mass of humanity and thinks... Have I made a huge mistake? Obviously, we're going to have to share our narrative perspective somewhat with the Crusaders. It's an ambiguity that nicely reflects the ambiguity of the Crusade itself. Were these pilgrims or mercenaries? Were they here to free the Eastern Christians or conquer them? We must attempt to maintain our Byzantine-centric focus. So before we begin... I think it's important that we remember what Alexius and the Roman state had just been through. It's been ten episodes since we were last immersed in the narrative, so here's a quick reminder. In 1091, Alexius finally brought the Pechenegh Wars to a close with the help of the Cumans. In 1093, Alexius marched to Serbia and heard rumours of plots against him. In 1094, again on the road to Serbia, those rumours came to life as Nicephorus Theogenes attempted to assassinate the emperor, 
The conspiracy included Alexius's friends and family. In 1095, the Cumans invaded, led by Leo Theogenes, or someone claiming to be him anyway. Alexius gathered his battered army once again and drove them off. In 1096, 100,000 crusaders were on the march for Constantinople. This context is very important. Alexius, his regime, and his people were feeling vulnerable. The Balkans had been torn apart by war for over a decade now. The army was still struggling for cohesion, and the emperor didn't know who he could trust. The Byzantines were not in the best shape to deal with a huge migration of people, people who were seized with religious enthusiasm and expected to be welcomed as liberators. But Alexius had to support the armies of Westerners emerging over the horizon. His inability to land an army in Anatolia was eating away at his legitimacy. He needed thousands of fighting men if he was going to stand up to the Turks, and he would never have a better opportunity than this moment right now. He was well aware, though, that however good their intentions, the Crusaders were still a threat. Their goal was not the same as his, and if he stood in their way for too long, they were likely to turn on him. Alexius was about to face the greatest challenge of his life, and he knew it. We have no record of direct communication between Urban and Alexius during this period, but there must have been some sort of diplomatic channel. The sermon at Clermont was preached in November 1095, just a few months after the Cumans had been pushed back over the Danube. The following spring, messages reached Alexius, informing him of the scale of Urban's recruitment drive. The Vasilevs was reassured by the proposed start date of August the 15th. That gave him many months to prepare for the logistical and military headaches that such a large number of people presented. It must have come as something of a shock then when new missives appeared in May 1096, informing Alexius that tens of thousands of excited pilgrims had already reached the Kingdom of Hungary. This was well ahead of schedule, and the early reports of their behaviour sent a chill down the spine. Anna tells us that her father dreaded the arrival of this fanatical horde, and he had every reason to do so. The people marching through Hungary were the so-called People's Crusade, those inspired by the preaching of Peter the Hermit. The French ascetic had taken up Urban's proposal enthusiastically, and set off immediately after Easter 1096, with excited followers in tow. Peter headed through Germany towards Hungary, following the traditional pilgrim's road, which ended at the Danube River. Professional soldiers and destitute peasants alike were on the road, with little coordination. Several contingents, inspired by local preachers, set off before Peter had arrived, while other groups would follow in his wake. As Peter Frankopan says, Alexius and Urban had played a dangerous game. The violent passions stoked up by their crusading propaganda were not easy to control. Provincial priests took their message far and wide. 
In order to stir their audiences into action, they described in lurid detail the suffering of pilgrims and Eastern Christians at the hands of the pagans. Some likened the pain being suffered to Christ's crucifixion itself. It was a lethal cocktail of incitement. How could a good Christian leave home to right those wrongs when the very people who'd killed Jesus were living amongst them? Several French towns exploded into anti-Semitic riots after such preaching that Easter. But worse was to come as Peter and his recruits made their way through Germany. In Cologne and Mainz, Jews were tortured and massacred. Elsewhere, they were forcibly baptised or robbed to help finance the crusade. The shocking violence appalled many, but little was done by senior nobles and clergymen to stop it. The brutalising of defenceless civilians gave the denizens of the People's Crusade an inflated sense of their own righteousness. They began to view any obstacle in their path as a legitimate target for sanctified violence. Next to discover this alarming ideology was the King of Hungary. He welcomed the pilgrims into his realm, but sent out detachments of his army to police their movements. When supplies ran low, the crusaders quickly resorted to violence, and a Hungarian captain lost his head in the skirmish which followed. Peter and his vanguard crossed the Danube by the end of May, and the King of Hungary closed the door behind them. The next wave of pilgrims were met by the Hungarian army, at the border fortress of Wieselberg, where many made an abrupt end to their journey. Back in Byzantium, the first contingents landed in Belgrade to be received by a suspicious population. Imperial officials were concerned that food was going to run out too quickly, so they banned merchants from selling to the new arrivals while they consolidated supplies. Predictably, the Crusaders reacted by storming through the streets and out into the suburbs, stealing food and attacking the local population. The Byzantine garrison had to use force, and order was only restored once a centralised marketplace had been established. By the time Peter himself arrived a few weeks later, the authorities were better prepared, but by appearing so much earlier than expected, the People's Crusade were causing all sorts of problems. Further clashes happened en route to Constantinople, where Peter's followers coalesced in early August. Obviously, they were not allowed inside the Theodosian walls, but made camp in the country outside. Alexius welcomed Peter and the other leaders into the palace, but encouraged them to wait until reinforcements arrived. The Byzantines were not impressed with the look of the new arrivals. There were too many civilians amongst them and too few horses. But the order to sit still was too much for the excitable pilgrims, who again began to assault the local Christian population. They were accused of ransacking buildings, starting fires and stealing lead from the roofs of churches before offering to sell it back to the Byzantines. And these accusations, by the way, come from Latin historians, not Anna Comnini. Uh, by the way, Anna was about 14 at this point, so her history will start to be influenced by her actual memories, but she wouldn't have been directly involved with any of this. 
Alexius didn't want to ferry this unruly mob over to Asia. He knew they stood little chance in battle with the Turks, and if he sent them over now, it would give the Sultanate Nicaea advance warning of his plans. But the Crusaders caused such a nuisance that he felt he had to. Historian Christopher Tyerman speculates that Alexius could not risk the farms of Thrace being bled dry by the Crusaders. It was those farms that supplied the grain for the population of Constantinople. Keeping the people of the capital calm was key for the Komnenian regime, which had only survived a serious coup attempt two years earlier. If grain prices suddenly shot up, then riots down the Messi might not be far behind. By mid-August, the People's Crusade, perhaps 15,000 people, had all been moved over to Anatolia. As I mentioned in passing during our introductory episodes, Alexius had built a new fort and warehouse complex at Kibitos on the coast near Nicomedia. It was designed to be the base from which future attacks on Nicaea could be prepared. This is where the Latins were now ensconced. Though Peter the Hermit had inspired their journey, practical leadership fell upon the knights in the camp. Rather than acting together, though, different groups began to make sorties into the Anatolian countryside. Yet again, people were abused and food was stolen, and again it was largely fellow Christians, local Byzantines in this case, who would suffer. By mid-September, one group had raided all the way to Nicaea, while another had captured a local fortress known as Zerigordos. Over at Nicaea, the sultan watched on with bemusement and began gathering his men to deal with the invaders. The horse archers quickly surrounded Zerigordos, which had no internal water supply. The defenders surrendered after a thirsty week and were either killed or enslaved. The Turks now closed in on Kibitos, where the remainder of the crusaders marched out to fight them. Totally unused to step arrow fire, the Westerners were quickly broken and fled back to their camp. What followed was a slaughter. A few hundred escaped into the hills or trees, but the rest were either butchered or captured. It was all over in a matter of hours. Peter the Hermit was not present as this disaster was unfolding. He was still at Constantinople, negotiating for more supplies. When the news arrived, he must have been horrified and thoroughly humiliated. He begged Alexius to send the fleet back to rescue the survivors. The Byzantines picked up those they could find and brought them back to their suburban camp. Imperial troops disarmed them and ordered them to stay put until the rest of their brethren arrived. The People's Crusade was an unmitigated disaster. Allegedly, the bones of the dead were eventually ground down and used as mortar by the Turks, mortar they used to fill in cracks in their fortifications. Peter Frankopan sums up the poetry of their failure Thus the bones of the first wave of knights seeking to fight their way to Jerusalem were used to obstruct the men following after them. Alexius was already in a difficult position. 
He could do little to control the actions of Peter's followers, and yet he was blamed by some for their destruction. He was the head of the Christian world, according to his own propaganda, yet he'd stood by and watched as pious souls had been cut to pieces by the enemy. He must also have been distressed that so many resources and so much political capital had been wasted on this disaster. There were at least valuable lessons to be learnt. These crusader armies needed to be met by open markets and imperial troops. They must be kept happy, but also kept in line. When the next wave of recruits reached Constantinople, their leaders had to be better organised and educated about what lay ahead, and their forces had to be moved away from the capital before they became a threat. These lessons were quickly absorbed and put into practice. There was also an ironic twist in the military shambles which the Turks had encountered at Kibitos. Rather than tipping them off that further Roman aggression was on the way, it bred complacency. If this was the best that Alexius's mercenaries could do, then there was no need for concern. When the next wave of crusaders land in Asia, they will be intensely vulnerable to a swift Turkic attack. But none would come. Lulled into a false sense of security, the Sultan of Nicaea would allow the crusaders to muster unopposed and would lose his capital as a result. The People's Crusade is named as such to contrast it with the Prince's Crusade, as the rest of the First Crusaders are sometimes called. There would be few actual princes involved, but certainly a collection of hardened warriors who would maintain a far more disciplined approach to warfare than Peter's followers had. Next time, we track the arrival at Constantinople of the four contingents of more serious pilgrims, and the most intriguing confrontation will be between former enemies, Bohemond and Alexius. While you're waiting for that, you can hear me being interviewed on History's Most podcast. As you heard at the start of today's show, I made the case for Byzantium being the most underrated civilization. Come and hear me talk about how Byzantium influenced our understanding of religion, the First World War, and the Mafia, amongst other things. We talk about why women were able to exert power in Byzantine politics, along with a variety of other topics. And then you can go to historiesmost.libsyn.com and check out their other episodes, including History's Worst Misconception, History's Most Successful Freedom Fighter, and History's Worst Democracy, along with lots of other thought-provoking discussions. Search for History's Most wherever you get your podcasts. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 